Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the move towards a more diverse media workplace and how that intersects with a union drive that's affecting media groups all around the country. So what we've seen over the last year, but really intensely over the last six months, is a lot of newsrooms, big and small, cutting deals with unions that cover mostly their writers, but sometimes the whole organization. And what's happened is that those efforts have kind of grown with an effort to sort of make diversity a higher priority for these organizations. Diversity efforts have been underway for decades and decades across media, and frankly, very little has happened. And now, finally, these union negotiations are pressing progress in a way that it hasn't happened before. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Maya Binyam, who's written a piece for CJR's new print magazine that delves into all of this and explains it, I think, in a really compelling way. And Betsy Marais, who's the managing editor of CJR, who shepherded this latest print issue of our magazine. Maya, thank you so much for joining. So this piece that you wrote for our print issue is about the relationship between the diversity in newsrooms or really the lack of diversity in newsrooms and the union drives also sort of affecting newsrooms. And what was what was enlightening, but I but I also sort of knew and it's depressing is how long this diversity conversation has been happening and how mm-hmm. little has a little progress has actually been made. Can you sort of talk through a little bit of that history? Yeah, definitely. So in 67, I think it was, uh, that's when the Kerner Commission came out, um, which sort of indicted the media for failing to accurately and significantly represent um, explicitly the experiences of Black people in the country. And so after that, there was this massive push in within media and within newspapers specifically to uh, support the work of non-white journalists, um, and also to portray um, the experiences of non-white people in this country with the same sort of um, attention and generosity that had been um, given to reporting that was about, you know, white people. Um, and so that's when, you know, the National Association of Black Journalists, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, um, that's when those organizations were founded. Um, and the news organization, the ASNE, that essentially came out with a report that was indicting the lack of diversity, the lack of racial diversity specifically within the news industry, and sort of set a goal for, I believe it was initially 2020, that there would be parity within newsrooms so that mm-hmm. um, the racial makeup of newsrooms would match the general racial makeup of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple decades later, it became clear that that goal would not be met. And so it was pushed back uh, years later. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, a number of newsrooms started essentially diversification efforts. So uh, Max Frankel, who was the executive editor of the New York Times, he started um, what was called a one-for-one hiring policy. So mm-hmm. for every new white hire, there had to be a new black hire. Um, and the idea was if you hired Black people and white people at the same rate, eventually the newsroom population would be more or less equal. Yeah. Um, and that was and that that policy was specific to black reporters. It did not include reporters um, who were people of color, but not black. Um, but in any case, uh, it was a massive failure because the people who were working under him 
they refused to hire black people, even as their staff size dwindled. So a white reporter would leave, uh, they would hire a white person, and then the staff would refuse to follow up that hire with, um, with a black reporter. This just happened over and over and over again. I mean, it is when you when you talk about Kerner Commission, I mean, it is like, it's so sobering to say that, you know, that's 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a half century mm-hmm. ago, more, more. And and all of the, and, and in your piece, you sort of detail case after case. And I thought that Times example was great because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, he actually laid out a very specific plan, a very sort of mm-hmm. actionable plan. And he was fought by his own people at a place. And this, this, is, this is the thing that we keep hearing over and over again, at a place that sort of espoused values that would say, that would lead you to think that this is something they could actually get on board with. But mm-hmm. it happened, you know, it happened everywhere. Every, everybody was saying the right thing and then not actually taking the actions. Mm-hmm. And, and I know this, is, this goes deep and, and gets into a lot of, bigger, of issues that transcend the journalism business. But how do you sort of analyze that, that dissonance between what people say they want and their mm-hmm. willingness to actually do it? I mean, it's tricky. This is something that came up in basically every conversation that I had with my sources who were, who are trying to organize their, their newsroom, sort of, everyone believes that managers genuinely, and I say this in the piece, like genuinely want to possess diversity. And I think like that, that choice of language, um, and the verb specifically like possession, um, I think that, that that is sort of indicative of what people are saying they want when they say they want racial diversity. It's something that they want to, they want to be true of the organization that they run because uh, maybe because it's profitable, maybe because it looks good for subscribers and for readership, uh, maybe because they think that there is some inherent value in having a diversity of, of perspectives represented. Um, Or it may just be that, you know, we've been, uh, we've been told to believe that, um, yeah, that diversity has some, has some kind of inherent value. Um, and you think that you think the problem, there's a problem in the language itself. It's sort of like, it's sort of like saying you're in favor of peace on earth. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think that there's a problem in the language itself. And I think that is because the language is entirely unspecific. Um, and I think that the reason why conversations around diversity have been happening literally for, for 50 years, um, and in many ways, the language in the Kerner Commission was much more potent than the language that a lot of media CEOs use today, which is sort of like, um, I don't know, flaccid for, for lack of a better word. Um, but I think people are people are talking about different things when they're talking about diversity. Um, sometimes people are talking about hiring, about who's in the newsroom. Sometimes people are talking about um, genuinely anti-racist action. So how to ensure that you know, black people and other non-white people in the newsrooms aren't treated, aren't treated worse than, than their white colleagues. Um, you know, sometimes people are talking about, uh, protecting against retaliation when someone expresses a view that, um, a conservative white person might find, um, offensive or might consider to be a fireable offense or something like that. Um, so I think people are talking about a lot of different things and, Something that I found in my reporting is that a lot of a lot of managers, of course, not all of them, but a lot of managers who are talking about trying to cultivate um, trying to cultivate diversity really don't have a sense for what that actually means uh, in conjunction with with their workers. Do you know what I 
I find that term I, I, when I I find the use of the term diversity sometime to be kind of um, it's 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 dehumanizing or something because mm. I've I've actually heard people make a correlation to like plant life like mm-hmm. diversity in nature is good mm-hmm. because it creates a sort of more robust environment therefore diversity in work floor workforce is good again it's a dehumanizing argument so what's yeah I don't, I don't know what do you think about that yeah I mean something I should say that I I sort of hate diversity rhetoric um and a question that I had as I was approaching this piece is like one, what does diversity mean in this context where, you know, unions are in conversation with their managers, but also I genuinely like couldn't quite understand what diversity could provide to a newsroom. Like that was a genuine question that I had. I think it's often mm. taken for granted that mm-hmm. um, many perspectives as they're informed by, um, you know, a raced or gendered experience or even a class experience in this country. Um, having an array of perspective along those lines will, will serve uh, the news that, that a media organization produces. Um, and I think that, that that's typically taken for granted when people are talking about the importance of diversity in, in a mm. workplace. Um, but I actually like couldn't exactly like wrap my mind around that, um, especially because I was trying to find examples of um, diversity clauses in other unionized industries because you know, it wouldn't make sense, for example, for like a coal miners union to have clauses that say management agrees that, you know, a certain percentage of interviewees for um, for these jobs will come from underrepresented backgrounds or whatever. Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense in except in industries that make some fundamental claim to representation. Um, so like I can imagine a similar kind of thing existing within film, for example. And I know that that there are similar clauses in, in like casting for movies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a really difficult time. Yeah. Understanding what, um, what was inherently beneficial about having workers from, from a number of different perspectives and, and sort of the, the answer that I came up with in my reporting and I'm still not totally satisfied by it was just that like, you know, the news makes, it makes a series of fundamental claims to representation, you know, it claims to speak for a public. um, And that can only be true insofar as, as the people that it has working on its behalf, um, are representative of that public. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I think a lot of the, the quotas that these unions are, are trying to push for hiring, um, that sort of ask that, management interview a certain percentage of applicants from underrepresented backgrounds. Sometimes those quotas are measured against population of the city or the state or the country or whatever. So um, who they consider underrepresented groups has to do with the general population. And I think the kind of like ideology behind it is that ideally one day the population of the newsroom could the racial makeup of the population of the newsroom would match the racial population of sort of like the makeup of, of the general, the general public. Um, well, well, there's a pragmatic element to this. I remember hearing about, you know, David Carr, when he ran the Washington city paper, um, actually did a really good job of bringing in writers of color, including mm-hmm. Tana Coates, I think was hired mm-hmm. by him there. And his, his argument was always like, look, if we, we're just going to miss stories otherwise. 
Mm-hmm. It was a very like uh, it was a very straightforward pragmatic view. So let's get to the how have this problem and the kind of unionization of newsrooms have sort of come together. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring in Betsy. Welcome, Betsy. Hello. Hello. So, but my my continue the the sort of storyline. Uh, I mean, actually, fast forward the storyline. So, so mm-hmm. um, how has this union drive been used to sort of address this inclusion problem that these media companies weren't able weren't able or really weren't willing to do on their own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So among the the union organizers that I spoke to, um, I think there was a sense that in the past five or so years, as digital digital media union shops have begun to organize, um, diversity has been a really central concern and not just diversity, but also anti-racism and, you know, the various uh, like coupled phrases that that attend diversity, like diversity and inclusion or whatever. Um, Those things have been sort of central to the concerns of these shops that have recently organized alongside things like regular pay increases, um, like assuring like anti-harassment clauses, stuff like that. Um, And from the people that I spoke with, it has been, it's been really difficult to get concrete language into contracts. Um, Almost any media organization will sign off on something that says, you know, Condé Nast is uh, committed to, diversity and inclusion in, in all aspects of, of its business or whatever. Um, almost everyone will agree to that. Very few managers will outright agree to committing to uh, interviewing a certain percentage of applicants from underrepresented backgrounds or uh, giving the union a budget so that reporters can go to uh, the NABJ conference, stuff like that. Mm. Um, and But I think this summer represented a kind of turning point Um, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd um, and sort of the calls for police abolition and prison abolition that were coming out of that, I think this kind of like, what I perceive to be a kind of cognitive dissonance happened with media companies where those calls, you know, in, in some ways that are understandable, sort of turned into calls for workplace redress. And suddenly all of these media organizations were coming out and saying, Black Lives Matter, we're committed to racial diversity within our organizations. Um, you know, we will be taking such and such steps to uh, to ensure that, you know, we have a, a, a real kind of racial diversity. And oftentimes those steps were just creating new committees or allocating money to new committees. Um, and so, but meanwhile, these unions that have been trying to get, uh, that have been trying to get management to agree to contract language that would be binding that would ensure that you know these new steps that they're saying that they're going to take uh are actually actionable and have some kind of effect that is felt among the workforce um they were having a really difficult time doing that um and so it's sort of a a weird a weird time where you know management i think feels pressure to commit themselves to racial diversity and so the union is able to um is able to push for that to a greater degree. But again, I think the the question of what diversity actually means is still sort of unanswered and, and causing problems in many ways. Betsy, sort of step back. This is what we were trying to address in this this issue of the CGR magazine is like, it's, it's a broader sort of shift towards the individual and away from the institution in the press. Mm-hmm. Like 
put it in some kind of bigger frame for us. Yeah. So this is all happening at a time when institutions are pretty much on the decline <laughs> across industries and trust in institutions is declining and public and, and the private sphere. Um, so, you know, the, the pandemic hits and journalism is already financially struggling across the country. Some 30 million people lost their jobs and at least 36,000 people in the journalism industry lost their jobs. Um, at the same time, people are have been assessing their relationship to their institution. Like when I first started in journalism, I looked up to people who had been working in the same place in roughly the same job for decades. They had maybe started out in an entry-level position and impressed people and worked their way up. And it was the American dream. And for people in my generation and the people who are up-and-comers now, they're not necessarily feeling that way about their employer. They're feeling like it is inevitable that they're going to have a number of different jobs over the course of their career, that their career isn't tethered to their institution, that they have to think about their life and their work in a different kind of way for very practical reasons. Um, and that includes like, how am I treated in the workplace? What do I, what am I looking for in my, in my work experience? And, and, uh, that, and, and that's of course all happening while, you know, you have venture capitalists coming in and buying up media companies and just stripping them down and asking people who once maybe wrote a piece a week to write five posts a day. And so if you're a journalist, inevitably there's going to come a point in your career, if not in your hour where you're thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> mm. um, what, what are my goals here? And, um, you know, a lot of those people have decided to leave their institution or they were among the people who were laid off before or increasingly after the pandemic started. So um, some of those people, as Cleo Chang writes, have gone to Substack um, and one of the strengths of her piece, I think, is that she she describes the kinds of people who are on sub on Substack in a variety of ways. And there are some of the people, some of the people there are there basically because it's like a place to land. It's a place they they were able to to get some kind of steady income from, um, and a place where they can have a degree of independence and sort of define for themselves what kind of work they're trying to do and pursue that. Then there are other people who are on this other, in this other demographic who have been enormously successful in the institutional systems that they've come from so much so that they don't really need their institutions anymore. If you're a super successful personal brand name journalist, uh, and you can charge people directly and you don't have to go through the hassle of say editing, <laughs> um, Substack is very appealing to you. So with Substack and other options and a sense of like the institution isn't going to be your permanent home, um, individuals are figuring it out for themselves in a different kind of way and also connecting with one another as they need support that they may have once gotten 
in the infrastructure of a newsroom now it's more like people are turning to each other and being like do you feel this way yeah and Mm. you know the that leads to labor organizing it leads to like sort of setting new norms it's it it leads to a lot of different kinds of things that come up organically in a different kind of way than you would get at like a traditional newsroom but so what does this mean for in a way what you're talking about betsy almost lets the organizations off the hook um if people just say well this isn't working for me i'm out and i can do it uh you know what i mean um Um, I think that institutions um, reach a point. I think institutions are disinclined to change unless they realize it's going to somehow cost them (laughs) not to. Um, So this summer, I think what Maya is talking about is like a point at which some institutions were like, it's going to cost us not to do something. Or at least it's going to cost us in some way, like we're going to lose people who are you know, contributing revenue, we're going to lose people who are contributing to our whatever, like that, you know, maybe it's like a person or uh, an audience that they that they care about. So, you know, the institutions are absolutely not to be left off the hook. But it's more like an institution is like this big unchanging force that like requires it requires pressure to 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 uh change something um so some people have chosen to try to create change within their newsrooms where they are um and some people for as a matter of choice or as a matter of necessity have left um and so either way you have workers who are setting their own rules as they maybe didn't before or, or taking cues from one another when maybe in the past they took cues from their boss. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of exciting change happening and, and that's great. Um, The organize, there was a, a CJR issue before I started working at CJR about working that had multiple articles about labor organizing and media um, and that was like a couple of years ago. So this has been going on for a long time. And I think the summer was like a point of intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a very difficult time because, of course, the the financial situation for media institutions has only gotten worse. And the pandemic has been a really difficult blow Um, and so there are also people, and we talk about this in the issue who are just sort of looking elsewhere altogether (laughs) for Mm -hmm. ways of, um, of funding what they do and rethinking, you know, the same question of like, what am I doing here and why? So, you know, Abe Streep is in Colorado talking to a local publisher who says, if journalism is a public service, it ought to be publicly funded. And we have public media in the United States, but it doesn't represent most media. And local journalists who have been working especially hard this year <laughs> um, to deliver just essential information to their communities, um, they are in some of the the hardest positions because local news is is struggling the most. And so 
some of those people are thinking, can I rethink what it means to do service journalism by creating flyers that contain the information that is also going in an article as is happening in, at Oakland side? Um, some people are thinking, can I train uh, members of my community to attend public meetings and, and have that be shared in a community news site as they're doing at City Bureau? Um, and Daryl Holiday writes for the issue about finding inspiration and mutual aid this summer. Um, and so like, you know, there's applying for public funds, there's these alternative forms of information collection and distribution. And it's all kind of coming from just like the stuff we have isn't quite working for us. And it seems like there's a lot of, there's a lot of rebuilding happening everywhere. And mm. if, if institutions are smart, they're going to like look around and see what's going on. <laughs> Maya, does, is Betsy's description, of, I mean, the, it, it's almost like this disconnection that people feel with the institutional home they have mm. or had, it, it, that would almost, that would almost mean that the people who are pushing for um, a change in hiring, you know, it's more a value that, whether they stay or not stay mm -hmm. at these organizations doesn't really matter. It's an important principle mm -hmm. that they're going to pursue it, whether, they, and even if they don't intend to stay there long themselves, mm -hmm. was that what you heard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think I, I definitely heard that there was a sense that like, you know, a number of people that are doing this organizing, they're really sick of the fact that corporate policy can change you know, once there's, once there's a change in management. And so people are trying to prevent that. And I think that seeps into how they view their own experience at, um, at an organization, you know, people want these structures to be lasting, even if they, uh, mm. even if they themselves like aren't there anymore. But I also think that when you stop identifying with an institution, like Betsy's talking about, like when you stop believing that it's going to house your entire career, or it's going to um, align perfectly with sort of, who you think you are and who you want to become, I think you can start thinking of yourself as a worker. Like you're someone who is there, who's providing value to uh, the organization. And in turn, you know, you get paid and you get benefits. And, you know, once you start thinking like that, I think it's easier to understand, well, like, well, actually the amount that I'm paid doesn't line up with the kind of work that I'm doing or even, you know, how much work, um, how much work I'm doing and also how that work compares to, you know, how much other people in the, org in the industry are doing. Um, and like, I think once you start connecting to your peers, not as individuals who identify with the institution um, and for whom the institution will, will provide a sense of, a sense of self. Um, but when you start connecting to your colleagues as, as workers, I think it becomes much easier to sort of make demands of, of your employers that, um, you know, that will be lasting and that will exist for people that, you know, work there long after you're gone. I also think physical space is a factor here because <laughs> since the pandemic hit, we've all been working remotely, which mm -hmm. means that we are literally separated from our institutions. And Ruth Margulie writes about this in her piece that like, it's uncertain for some people whether they're ever going to go back. And if you're a young person who's just starting out, you're never going to experience the immersion in the culture of an office and a, and a 
publication in the same way. Um, and that stuff is really formative. And it, uh, I think not having that also just changes your perspective on things. Mm. Um, and even for, you know, pre pandemic and just going forward, um, the, the way that we think about the office, you know, because so many media companies are based in like very expensive big cities and in all of these conversations about who is included and who is excluded from a newsroom and storytelling and audience, like that is itself something to consider. And um, the changes that are happening are innate that are also enabled by online publishing. Like there's just, there's just so much that leaves any individual journalist, editor, whatever, feeling like um, it's more project-based. It's more about mm -hmm. your, your, what are you contributing and why not necessarily to an institution, but to some other goal that you as an individual are setting for yourself. So finally for both of you, I mean, what, what is your level of optimism that we're not going to be um, that some future podcast or whatever form it happens to have in 50 years, isn't going to be having this conversation again. <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know. I don't, uh, you know, if I feel any amount of optimism, it's not necessarily because I believe that media execs sort of by their own volition or whatever will, will sort of come to see the light. Um, but I do feel hopeful about the, the fact that media workers are beginning to see themselves as workers. And once you start seeing yourself as a worker, I think there's a sense of, of continuity between your experience as a worker and perhaps like workers in other, in mm -hmm. other industries that may or may not be unionized. But I think that that kind of like alignment is, is really exciting to me. Um, and even like, you know, calls to abolish the police, for example, um, those calls may not help to diversity, diversify the media in the way that that project is currently being conceived, but in a world without police, uh, you know, we'd also have a world without news that is totally reliant on police for mm -hmm. crime reporting, for example. Betsy? I just know that in 50 years, if I'm still alive, I'm going to be listening to this and thinking, God, I was so off base. <laughs> Whatever I say. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think jour journalism is always changing. Um, but fundamentally, there's always a desire to tell stories about the reality around us. The, the people who are most empowered to do that at any given moment are going to do it. And the people who are on the margins are going to do it anyway. It's messy and that's okay. I, I, I'm not sure um, exactly what it will look like and e whether we'll even call it journalism. And that mm. has particular implications for community like like local community based uh news outlets and people who live in smaller communities where like there's no one showing up at the courthouse every week to to go through yes. the files that like ultimately reveal in granular terms the things that we're talking about on the national scale mm -hmm. 
right, I'll, we'll leave it on this quasi-optimistic note. <laughs> um, Betsy, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Uh, Maya, it's a terrific piece. Yeah. Thank, thank you for doing it. You can read it at cjr.org, as well as all the other pieces in our newest print issue of our CJR magazine. Read us on the media today, our newsletter, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. See you next week.